how do you create authentic and organic historical experiences in the choral rehearsal? We'll have a discussion with Tony Silvestri, lyricist, poet, historian, and our composer profile is on Gregorio Allegri. This is Early Music Monday. I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, our discussion with Tony Silvestri is really cool and really informative, and to hear his perspective on things is really interesting. But to start, I want to talk about how to be authentic. That's like the most annoying thing ever when you meet someone and they just like scream inauthenticity, and you can tell they're totally phony. Nobody likes people like that. And so if you're a conductor or a singer or an educator or a musicologist or whatever, if you try to like manipulate or kind of force these phony experiences to kind of teach the history, I think that's partially why, I mean, if you combined that with the the fact that a lot of history professors the the kind of uh stereotype is and so and so was born on this date and then this happened in 1654 with the pen on the parchment and it just goes on and rambles about dates i think if you combine those two things inauthenticity and rambly boringness that kind of gives history a bad rap. So how do you be authentic? How do you just be that way? The first thing is you got to be true to yourself. You have to know yourself. What in choral music history, in the context of this podcast, you know, what in choral music history excites you? Make a list. If you don't really know, go listen to some of your favorite pieces. Find other pieces from history that you can connect that to. And then make maybe make a list why. I love the dynamic range. I love the text setting. I love the interplay between the voices. I love the texture shifts. I love the harmonic language. I love the melodic line. There's so much to kind of latch on to. So then... Love that and let that be your foundation, your springboard, the starting point to create an authentic experience. I guess the same would go with life. How do you be authentic? Well, what makes you you? And don't try to be something you're not. I mean, we should all be trying to improve. I believe in, well, okay, I kind of get short-tempered when I drive. That's just how I am. But that doesn't mean that I should just embrace it and never try to change that's something that's irrational and that i can seek to improve to make a better version of myself and so we should all be doing that we own it we own who we are and always be seeking to improve at the same time and i think if we do that with you know trying to 
approach historical music and help singers and students come to that in an authentic way, something that's authentically and organically exciting to us, it will be authentic and exciting to them. So I know it's like, it's kind of difficult for me to sit here and say, you know, because historical music and early music is really genuinely and organically exciting to me, that then here, just like, become that way. That's what I'm saying. It, it's tricky. You have to have experiences with it in order for it to affect you and change you. Then you can help give those experiences to your singers, to your students, to your friends, whatever the case may be. So I hope this podcast helps you have experiences with early music because that's how you kind of have those experiences is you kind of experience something new and connect it to some experience that you've already had. And the, the marriage of those two things together then creates this new experience. And then as that deepens, you find tools to convey that and help recreate a really natural an unforced experience for the audience, for the singers, and everyone's just changed for the better, and it's just awesome. So one example Tony uses in our interview that he talks about that he does with his classes, he'll bring in coins from the time periods that he's talking about, authentic coins, and they get to like touch them and feel them and pass them around, and it's like, whoa, all of a sudden, the people from that time period exist in one instant. It's really cool. And so I mentioned briefly, just off the top of my head, it came, it was like, what if you sang, what if you recreated somehow, uh, you, you know, you pick a piece from CPDL, something that you can kind of readjust, and you recreate the idea of singing from a part book. And you show a medieval painting of singers singing around a part book. You'd be like, that's what it was like. Um there's all kinds of possibilities that you can do to kind of recreate these authentic experiences. Um, I would love to hear some ideas from you. And if anyone has any that they've used and had some success with, that would be fantastic. All right. So our interview. um, So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Tony Silvestri is a lyric poet. He's a professor of medieval history And he's written the lyrics for many, many choral composers uh, around the world today. Probably the most notable uh, artistic partnership that he has is his relationship with Eric Whitaker. He's written several pieces with Eric Whitaker, including Leonardo Dreams, Saint-Chapelle, and uh, the new work, Sacred Veil, which is amazing. And he talks a little bit about Sacred Veil at the end of our interview. So, uh, without any more dilly-dally, here's our interview with Tony Silvestri. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. A busy, busy man. So, um, to start, I haven't really heard a lot too much of your career story. You've explained, you've kind of gone through, you know, how you began working with Eric Whitaker and how you got into what you call lyrical poetry. 
but but before that how did you get to where you were when that moment started i guess yeah um I, uh, <clears throat> my career is as a historian. I teach at a university here in Kansas, and uh, before that I taught high school in Los Angeles. Um, I was a history major in college, and then my master's and PhD are also in history, in ancient and medieval history. And even all through graduate school, I knew that what I really wanted to do was teach high school. And so I, I studied in such a way so as not to make me the best scholar in the world, but to make me the best teacher that I could be. So I took an eclectic mix of classes. I tried to make myself into a generalist rather than a specialist. And that was kind of, that sent my dissertation advisors into conniptions. But, um, but I was able to, I was able to pass um, my, I got through my dissertation. And, and in the end, I, I'd already gotten the job teaching at the high school when I was still writing my dissertation. And it was a real struggle. Uh, to finish yeah. while teaching full time, especially when I didn't need to have a PhD to teach there. And so ultimately I finished simply because I wanted to look awesome at graduation yeah. and I wanted the students to be able to call me doc. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So that in the end, that's the only reason why I finished my PhD. But anyway, totally good reason. <laughs> <laughs> so I was teaching there at that high school and, you know, living the dream. And that's when I met Eric uh, while I was in grad school. I, I, and I've t I think I've told that story in multiple locations sure. about, you know, being in a choir together while I was in grad school. Yeah. And, and the whole lyric writing thing was just a fluke. It was, it was just helping him out with a problem that he had that, that I don't know why he asked me. I'd never written any poetry before. Right. But apparently I was pretty good at it. And so he kept asking me and then everybody else is like, hey, you wrote for Eric Whitaker. Why don't you write for me? And then before I know it, 20 years and 300 poems later. Yeah, um, exactly. That, that no. story is so fascinating to me. And, and again, I'm sure you've told it in interviews like this countless times. So, so I would like to kind of focus on some some maybe different aspects of your career because I, you know, no one's going to come to this. I'm just starting out this podcast. No one's right. going to come here to find out your story. You, you've told it several times, but well, but let, can I add something to it though for for your for your listeners? I mean, people have asked me why I became a medievalist, yeah, and I think I mean because your particular interest here is early early stuff, and so exactly where I was. Um, so, yeah, so. I like to think of it like I think I was always a, an antiquarian, right? I didn't really understand what a historian was, but I was always fascinated by old things. Um, my I had an uncle that would always give me a Morgan silver dollar for my birthday, nice. and and it's like, oh my god, this is 1912, or oh, it's from 1899. I was so excited about that. It was a big, heavy silver thing, you know. Right. In an, in an eight-year-old's hand, a Morgan silver dollar is like, you know, pirate treasure. And and I just loved that. And and I remember too being fascinated by the Middle Ages. And and one of the turning points I think of my whole life was watching the Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Wow. And this would have been this would have been maybe in 1972, 1973, something really, really early. And uh, and just the idea of 
suits of armor coming to life and and a mixture of medieval and and world war ii era stuff and right. so it was historical and cool and supernatural and i just i dug it yeah. um, and i remember the openings the opening credits are done in the style of the bayou tapestry okay and so it's it's just like that embroidery uh style but it has angela lansbury's name on it and the right. name of the movie and i remember thinking at that age like how did they get a medieval work of art that had their names on it i mean what are the odds of that happening it never occurred to me that a modern artist could paint in an antiquarian style yeah and so my whole life too, I've been I've been fascinated by. Well, you can see it in here in my in my room, the, the icons behind me, and I've got all my pigments and stuff on the wall, uh, quill pens and stuff like that. So I've I've really tried in my in my own physical art, my 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 um, painting and, and drawing and stuff to recreate those antiquarian styles. That's amazing. What? And that's just as a kid. And I remember taking calligraphy classes and basically I, I was becoming a medievalist and I didn't really understand that that's what was happening. Right. So what, what, I mean, so I, I kind of like, that's where you all started as you started studying. And when you were in your courses, what, what kept bringing you back to it? Was it that same kind of sense of wonder or magic of of kind of the past or or what kept you going through yeah I, I think probably probably three three threads kept me going the first is I really wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to be a good teacher and so I just absorbed everything like a sponge and I took almost word-for-word -word notes I got really good at that because I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to need to teach this class one day, or I'm going to loot this, these notes for lectures, right? And I have. My whole career, I have used the stuff that I learned in college and grad school. And so there's that. And then the second is just, I mean, historians become historians because they just love that stuff. They love the facts and the names and dates, and they can name all of Henry VIII's wives and all that. It's just, you know, we're great for trivia party, you know, to trivia teams. Right, right. Um, and so there's that, but also the, the real tangible aspect of it. And I think I, I fell into a dissertation that involved a manuscript edition. And so I was um, I sort of took over a project that my professor, who was about ready to retire, wasn't going to get to. Yeah. And so he had already photographed many of the manuscripts. But a lot of those manuscript photographs um, were were of such a quality that I needed to actually, I really needed to go to Bologna and to Florence and to Oxford to see the actual manuscripts. It was a real hardship to have to do that. Um, yeah, but at some point, you, when you're working from photographs, you have, to, you have to see the original to see if that little, is that a fly speck? Is it an ink blot? Is it, an archive, is it a scribal marking? Because it makes a difference sometimes in the meaning of the text. And so going to Bologna, for example, into the, the Monastery Library of San Antonio is, is um, it was really cool. You have to request the manuscript in advance, and then the monk literally disappears into the library chamber and then comes back with the book and sets it down in front of you. And you have to, you can only have a pencil. And, yeah. um, and, and, and you, so that was the, my first time actually handling an actual 
14th century manuscript and it was just really awesome what what was going through your mind like oh just i mean i was i was i was in name of the rose i was uh um indiana jones i mean it it was just the coolest darn thing and um and so that really solidified my love of medieval illumination and so i've taught classes and workshops in how to do it and i've produced many many pieces um with handmade paint and on painted on calf skin you know as a painter i have to say you can paint on beautiful arches watercolor paper but there is nothing like painting on calf skin wow uh it's like the it's like the jaguar of 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 painting surfaces you know you just want to you just want to touch it and wax it all day long you know um it's a really sumptuous thing and 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 i found too that when you're using modern man-made um pigments they're functional but there is nothing like using real vermilion made of mercury right yeah wow Uh, or lead white lead white behaves differently than titanium white yeah and when and the combination of mercury vermilion and lead white on calfskin parchment it's like i get it i totally get it right i don't lick my brushes right (laughs) i'm not dumb but but i i i know the lure of that and i've always been a kind of tactile person too i love oil painting i love it for the smell of it i love the smell of turpentine and Right. and the, the different resins and the and the way that the way that different paints behave yeah they speak to you you know in, in right. a kind of alchemical kind of way uh and that's that's always really been a fascination to me and so as a teacher yeah. i try as often as i can to bring historical objects into my classes i have a swords in my collection and Ooh. i collect coins as well i've got coins going all the way back from ancient athens all the way through all the English monarchs and stuff like that. And so the other day in my medieval class, for example, uh, we were talking about English history from Alfred the Great to Edward Longshanks. And so I brought in coins, silver pennies of all of those monarchs and let them actually handle, like this thing is over a thousand years old and they're touching it. And and I just, I love that. And what do you think that does, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's similar to what it did for you, when yeah. you as an educator, but what do you think that does in it from a student's perspective? Well, I mean, you're right. That I, I want to create a class that I, as a student, would have been fascinated by and would have eaten up, right? Yeah, sure. And, and, and I've consciously tried to imitate the style of the teachers that were important to me in yeah. my career. Uh, I think as all teachers do, really. Right. Um, but what does it do for them? I, I think you know it's it's hard, it's hard to make history come alive for yeah. a modern student who's pulled in so many different directions. And the further back you go in period, it's just it's really hard to make ancient yeah. and medieval history relevant to a modern student. Yeah. So you know they're upper division classes, and so I'm already getting history majors and English majors and people who've already bought in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but even in my survey classes that are just freshmen taking for gen ed credit, um, bringing something in like that, yeah. a month and a half later, somebody comes into the office and wants to become a history major. That's awesome. You know, it's those sorts of things that they don't forget. And, you know, frankly, I don't care if they remember when Caesar was assassinated. 
What I want them to remember is why he was assassinated. Sure. And the parallels that exist between the Roman Republic and the American Republic. Right. Or I want them to remember, oh, I had this cool history class where the professor brought in coins and and yeah. parchment paper from the Middle Ages. And, you know, I have this feudal document, you know, that's written in a beautiful chancery French hand and stuff. And, and I, I let them handle it, you know. Um, that can be a life-changing experience. It would have been for me. Yeah. Uh, and it's the thing they remember. I, I want them to remember that they had a history class and it was fun. Yeah. Absolutely. If they remember any of the history, I don't care, but... And because it, and you know, for me, it's they're creating these emotional ties of of then to now, like yeah. it, all of a sudden, those people and places and things and events in history become real people instead yeah. of you kind of psychologically or subconsciously hold up a fantasy yeah. novel like Harry Potter to yeah. an actual history non-fiction book and if you don't know the people they might as well be the same sometimes exactly you can exactly bring those real people to life I, and, and you're right it's so hard well that's why i like a coin you know i i, I this you know, tetradrachma of of ancient athens you know that is a day's wage for a skilled laborer right right so it's the equivalent it's it's the hundred dollar bill of ancient athens right and so and it was minted at a time when Aristotle was alive. And so, you know, you pass it around and as they're holding it, you say, you know, Aristotle could actually have held this very coin yeah. and bought dinner for his friends, you know, That's with that coin. And so then you feel the weight of it and you think about a purse of those coins and how much that would weigh. And you see it in the movies, you know, where the, that scene, that, that trope where they have this little leather pouch and they toss it to somebody and, and it yeah. clunks on the table with that kind of silver weight underneath it. Those sorts of visceral experiences make, make it really come alive for students and, and it'll snag one of them or, or two of them a semester. And that's great. Yeah, and, and even the ones who, who maybe don't, you know, come into your office, like yeah. you said before, they'll at least have an experience where they're wanting to learn something now. They they had yeah. an experience. They they don't think of history as the stodgy kind of right boring now when a historical thing comes along their way later in their life, they're they're like, Okay, well, I know the tools, now I can kind yeah. of go through this myself. Yeah, you know, that's that's the ideal, that's the goal. Right. Um, I also try to actually have my students have historical experiences. Yeah. So um, in all of my 300 level classes, which are mostly majors and, and other very interested advanced students, I always have some sort of game or simulation or role play or some kind of activity that draws the student backwards in time. Rather than grabbing history and bringing it forward in time, I take the student and drag them backward. And so in my Roman history class, for example, I, I, it's just a straightforward lecture history class until we get to the death of Caesar. And then once Caesar is killed, then we flip and the class becomes the Roman Senate. Wow, and and those students are those men sitting there in the Senate, having to figure out, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. Uh, do we sponsor a public funeral for Caesar, uh, or not? Do we risk the anger of the mob? Uh, what do we do with Caesar's will? What do we do with the plans that he had made to invade Parthia and all this kind of stuff? And they have to hash it out, and they're given an agenda, they're given a personal identities, 
Yeah. And so they have to elect somebody consul and they stand up in, in the room and they have to address their fellow senators and blah, blah. They love that stuff. They just eat it up. Yeah. Uh, and then in my medieval class, um, I try to teach the class as if it was the 14th century. Wow. So, so we all wear our graduation robes at all times for every class all semester long. Wow. Um, in in non-COVID times, I created this beautifully bound in oak, a handmade book that I bound to get, and then it's chained to a table in the library. And it's the one book for the entire class. All the students have to use that one book and share it. They have to read it aloud to each other as they take notes because they can't all fit around the table at the same time. They love, love that stuff. Right. Uh, we start each day with a with a saint of the day. You know who was the saint in the in the calendar of, of saints in, in the Middle sure. Ages? Like the liturgy. Yeah, just give us a little bit of the vita of that saint. And if you feel comfortable doing it, the student could lead the class in prayer, sure. um, uh, as they would have done. Um, when it was my turn to do it, it was uh, I I took the feast of Michael and uh, and Gabriel the archangels, right? And so I found the proper. Uh, introit or something from the, the Liber of that day and projected it and taught them a little bit about nooms and how they work and then and then we chanted the the proper oh, prayer yeah. that day I mean they just I love doing stuff like that yeah um, where where the liminal space between now and then is a little blurry and and the space between a student and a participant of hi of history is also a little blurry. Um, I find those to be the classes that they really remember and, and connect with. Yeah. Well, and even just as you say that, uh, my my brain is going like a million miles an hour right now with, <laughs> with applications to a choral classroom because you yeah. can totally do the same thing and, and print like a, a short, like one page piece of relatively simple Renaissance, like If You Love Me by Thomas yeah. Tallis. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. one part per page like they would have, so you can't see yeah. the parts. It's like, yeah. and and the whole section gathers around like a poster board size. And like, yeah. Hey, yeah. this is how they, all of the Sopranos gather around this page, yeah. all the altos. And they would be like, what the, like, yeah. I know, that would be so weird. Meltdown. But <laughs> they would like. Another thing too, you know, I, I think for college students, this would be really good too. Like if they know, if you love me, then, and, and once they know it, then give them an addition in the yeah. the, the old notation and, right. and have them read what they already know. I mean, it's a way for them to kind of learn the way that old notation works. Yeah, absolutely. Those mensurations and see what what it would be like with no bar lines. And exactly, exactly. Yeah, that would be really cool. I think that because again, just like you said, those experiences. All of a sudden, now early music isn't this this kind of. Um, like obligatory like okay we did it on the program okay, this is nice, <laughs> right. and now we can <laughs> as much as a part of our canon as anything right. that eric whitaker is writing right now exactly. or the sacred veil that you just that just right. came out they're all in the same now kind of plane of relevance right. And again, it's hard to teach, you know, modern students why Secret Cervus by Palestrina is an important piece, why it's been in the repertoire for 500 years. And, and you know, some students are going to love it. Some students are going to hate it. I personally, I mean, it was at my wedding. I loved it. Wow. Uh, wow. And so, uh, it, you know, 
but not everybody's going to connect with that the way they're going to connect with a Whitaker piece or whatever. Sure. Um, and so any kind of activity that you can do to bring that alive, talk a little bit about who Palestrina was and where he lived and what the job of a composer was like at that time and, and who the audience was. Yeah. Um, or something like the famous story about uh, the... Um, What's the, the name of it? The, the the thing that Mozart heard and then transcribed. Oh, and the Miserere. Miserere, exactly. You know, that kids eat that stuff up. Yeah. And, and it's those sorts of lessons that when they hear that piece, because it's, you know, one of the top 100 choral works of all time, they're going to hear it over and over again. Right. Um, they'll know what it is and, and have that kind of context. And the little video with the London British chorister sucking the helium out of the balloon yeah exactly, <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, whatever they need to do yeah if you see this they always say have you seen this video mr k i'm like i've sung this piece before 100 times <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but that's why those even little silly things like that video yeah. are great about bringing it to life but there's yeah. you know tell the story of mozart i think that's really yeah. cool so in terms to shift gears just a little bit in terms of the the that historical kind of help bringing it to life. What are, what are some things as a lyricist, like you are a lyricist now, uh, whether you meant to be or not. Um, yeah. And, and as a lyricist, what are some connections that you see in terms of the role of the text and the music, you know, huh. going back for, did it, has it changed from then or to now, or is it somewhat similar, or is it different between genres? Like, what is your perspective on that relationship? Well, I mean, it would be different. My answer would be different if I had a musicology degree or, or sure. a music degree. You know, I, so I just have a chorister's understanding of the stuff that I I am aware of from before I became a lyricist. But which I, you know, I it, think is really valuable. And well, I, I, I think so too. You know, so it's cool to get all of the the different angles to look at right that's great and i think it's it's being a good musician or an experienced musician helps me to write better lyrics oh, of course um and i chant all of my lyrics that i write I, I always make melodies to make sure that they're singable and that they feel good in the mouth and also that there are there are paintable lines and things that the composer can use which is um, great I mean, it's part of my intentional process. But you asked about how things have changed. You know, there's, there's, uh, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I kind of fix on this, but like liturgical texts. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the historical canon from early music is is all church stuff, motets right. and biblical passages and and liturgical things. Those those texts are rich, you know, yeah. in imagery and stuff like that. But you know, back in the day, a lot of a lot of these compositions are more based on form than they're based on word painting. And you know, occasionally you get a Renaissance uh, composer who will who will paint musically a flower opening or something like that, and, and it'll be a kind of a um, of a word painting thing. I, I just think there's a lot more cinematic quality about choral music today. Yeah that that composers today have a lot more tools in their toolbox there's something to be said for basic counterpoint and you know right. bach harmony and stuff and you can make endless amounts of music that fit into that very elegant uh, aesthetic box yeah. right yeah uh, 
you know, in in which lives Talus and Palestrina and and Monteverdi and Bach and Purcell and all those guys. Right. Um, I'm I'm not I I hesitate to say that their their relationship with words was different than than our relationship today with words. I just find that I can connect to the word painting of a of a contemporary composer more effectively. Yeah. And more often than I can connect with the the word music connection of a of an uh, an older composer. Sure. And I, and I think to I think in the liturgical sense that that's totally fair. And I would I would I would say that if you took the like Monteverdi's book of like last four books of madrigals or someone like Carlo Gesualdo who's writing yeah. this crazy stuff, it would match more of today. But again, that was kind of those aren't the pieces that we usually think of when we think of early music. And right. so, so if we're so maybe to illustrate how it's changed to program one of those liturgical pieces with yeah. something that's much more cinematic. I really like that word cinematic. And, and I think that's something that a lot of students, college, high school, junior high, community yeah. choir members, doesn't matter. And the common audience really relates to that idea of like cinematic music. Yeah. So the minute you connect words with cinema, I think all of a sudden you've created this completely different experience than anything yeah. that probably would have been imagined back then. I think I, I think Ola Yelo is an is an example of a composer that that goes back and forth along that line in, in yeah. his career, right? Some of his music, and I've written many many pieces with with him and for him. Yeah. Some of of our collaborations are super expansive cinematic worlds, right? right? Where there's a lot of stuff going on, and then the choir is is an instrument that floats over top of a kind of churning underneath, right? And and audiences are are their breaths is taken away, right? Audiences are blown away by that. But yeah. from a word painting standpoint, I mean, okay, the poem is inspiring the landscape that he creates. But he's not word painting. The whole piece is painting that poem. Exactly. The meaning and scope and flavor and spirit of the poem. That's what he's painting. Kind of more, not individual lines. Right. On a more of, macro level versus... A, a macro level. level, yeah. And so it's really been fascinating for me to work with him and to, to always be surprised... Yeah. by the way that he approaches my text every once in a while. I mean, I also write for him a lot with melodies that he's already written. And so those pieces then, I kind of reverse engineer the word painting. So I create a text that makes his melody make sense as word painting, if that, make, if that wow, makes sense. Wow, that is that's so, like impossibly hard to me. But It's very <laughs> meta, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it's the kind of Rubik's Cube crossword puzzle Sudoku challenge that I, I kind of like creatively. Awesome. Um, it's hard when the composer says, oh, just write something about love and light, you know, right. and I stare at the blank page for six months. I have no way right. in. Um, yeah. But having an already created musical material that I have to fit stuff to, that, yeah. that's, a, that's a wheelhouse for me. Well, and I guess that makes sense. My composition class at BYU as a grad student, my composition well it was a it was a technically a theory course 16th century counterpoint but he 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 my professor was just like yeah my the best compositions i've gotten from students are most of the time 
composition assignments from theory students who don't care about composing because there's more yeah. parameters yeah so that that like unlocks your creativity whereas if it's like blank canvas sometimes right. it's too daunting and and, and too many choices right. that you kind of paralyze yourself so i i can relate to that and i, I think a choral composer has an advantage over a over an orchestral composer or, or a wind symphony composer in that regard in that you do have the starting place of the text yeah. so there is a rhythm there is a spirit there there's music embedded in that poem that 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 your job is to find and illustrate and enhance um, whereas if you're starting with a big old staff, you know, trying to write for 30 instruments at, you know, where do you even start? Yeah. Ooh, uh, I, I don't know how those guys and gals do it. I, I really don't. Yeah. Me neither. And I can barely, I mean, I've, I've composed a bunch and I've done things, but it's always mostly been choral. And because of that exact reason, like, or yeah. some of the stuff I've written have had, a, I've had to make a story with it, but I, I th Ed, can you think of any pieces off of the top of your head that you've done with Ola from that like backwards way where he's done the melody? Can you just so the audience can have a reference to go listen to? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a piece called now. See, that's another thing. Ola's naming conventions. I, I don't I don't ever know what he's going to call a piece. Um, uh, there's a piece called Seasons. Okay which started as i think it was a norwegian folk song that he wrote that oh. a setting for that he wanted an english text for and so i scrubbed away the norwegian listened to the music and thought okay what is what story is this music telling me and then i crafted a poem to go along with that and it's just about the the turning of the year and the turning of the oh. season so that that's an example awesome. um and in that particular piece it's a it's a four stanza poem right and in the third stanza, of course, it does something different, right? The composer can't get away with the same thing three times in a row. Right. So it, tur it turns darker in the third iteration. Sure. And then there's a, there's a kind of redemptive arc at the end. And so I thought, okay, the four seasons and let's make winter the dark one third one yeah right and then it comes out into the resurrection of spring and so that it made it made the programmatic sense of what he had written musically make sense textually oh that's so awesome. that so that a choir singing that now would never know that it didn't start with the poem yeah and have ola said it right oh that's that's great and i man there's so many possibilities with how you could, and I'm again, just kind of my brain going off all over the place, but if how you could sing that and, you know, with changing tone colors and, and right. like that. So I think that's really another, cool. another example from Ola of that kind of thing is called winter tide. Mm -hmm. um, it's a nice secular, secular Christmas piece about winter. Um, you know, where you're allowed to sing about snow, but you can't sing about, you know, baby Jesus. Right. Exactly. Um, and then tundra of course is is an example of the other the other way the kind of cinematic landscape the grandiose thing that he creates musically that the choir kind of floats over top of yeah um we he just came we just came out he, he just did an satb arrangement of that oh really yeah great yeah i've i've i was assistant conductor at byu of women's chorus and they and they performed that beautifully yeah. it yeah. sounds beautiful with women's voices i think That's such epic spans yeah. i think that's definitely something that he's uh, kind of created a niche for himself in yeah yeah um 
So to shift gears again, well, I, I don't, I, we could go, I could go on for, for That's all right. I got time. So, um, this idea of the role that music itself then plays being a medieval medievalist, what role did music have in like everyday society? Hmm. I mean, based, based on what I know, music is always present. Yeah. But but you have to perform it yourself, right? So, right. so it's not as omnipresent as it is now. We're bombarded right. with music all over the place, all the time. Um, families had to get together and do it. But I think, you know, the elite classes were, were well-trained in instrumental and vocal music. Sure. But, and we just, we have more records of that. We have visual images of women sitting at keyboards or playing lutes or you know uh, troubadours and that kind of thing we don't we have fewer evi evidences of of common music right but i mean we know from other periods and things that you know music is part of every everybody's life every family's life i i don't know i don't have a, a deeper answer i guess oh, no I, I think that's great um, and I think too, I mean, just look at the life of the clergy in the middle ages, you know, yeah. um, the vast majority of clergy were, were regular or monastic clergy. And so they're going to be punctuating their day eight times a day, yeah. getting together and singing, you know, yeah. and singing in that style that, that vibrates your sinus cavities in a particular frequency. And so I can imagine monasteries and convents being just sort of blissed out places all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. Where where you get together and you do that and you 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 grind through these psalms, yeah, week after week after week, you know, it becomes ingrained in your consciousness. And the fact that they use music to ingrain it into your it's a better way of teaching scripture, right? Oh, have, the, have the person sing it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I love the idea of of modes that only come around during Lent or during Advent, and so they become old friends that you look forward to, um, or this particular intro eat or something like that that only comes on that one day, and it's a joyful thing to sing that on that particular day. <coughs> that sort of thing appeals to me a lot. Um, and I grew up Catholic, and and I and in many ways I'm a historian of the Church. That's one of the things that fascinates me most about medieval history, yeah. um, and so. Uh, the the liturgical use of music yeah. to open up music opens up a person's heart yeah. and 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 it leaves them receptive to whatever it is that the music is carrying mm -hmm. and so when i write for a composer or when i speak to a choir i want to make sure that they understand that the the thing that a choir can do that no one else can do is communicate text right and so the the mu the composer's music, the soundtrack of my poem, yeah, opens up the audience's heart, and then that means the poem can zing in under the radar of the defenses of the audience, and it can really truly profoundly affect somebody. And so that's an awesome responsibility to be the bearer of the messages of those poems. Yeah, um, and I, and I think just like you said, that's why it was so crucial in the church. Yeah. Because that that is how they like worshipped and ministered, and I think that 
that remains true for a lot of faiths yeah. today. When you think about when you think about a cathedral or even a small chapel, it's a whole it's a, a multi-sensory experience, right? Yeah. You're going from from the light of the outside to the darkness of the inside. You're going from the noise of the piazza to the quiet and there's a special kind of quiet in a stone church, right? Yeah. It's 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 loudly quiet, you know. Right, right. Um and and there are smells of of a century of incense being burnt at, in in holy days that just sort of permeates the gray stone of the place. There's the sound of your footfalls on the on the 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 mosaic floor. Um the glint of of candlelight or torchlight on on gold on icons it's all it's all multi-sensory and then when the choir begins chanting yeah you know it's i i think about uh, I, I spent many years as an orthodox christian or singing in an orthodox church and it's that story you know where um boris gleb and igor return to kiev you know with the news of having been in constantinople and and right. and he Vladimir is like, well, what was it like? And they described it and said, we we knew not whether we were on earth or in heaven. Yeah. Um, and it's that blending of experiences. It, it Music is a part of transcendence. Mm. And the church wisely uh, uses that as, as one of its many tools in the toolbox to give yeah. people transcendent experiences. Some of my most transcendent experiences have been in rehearsal, in choir rehearsal, not yeah. even in the concert. It's right. that private, special perfection that only the choir gets to experience. Yeah, and I, I tell my students that all the time. Yeah, uh, the rehearse. I remember way more specific moments in rehearsal, like yeah. profoundly life changing. Yeah, yeah. In rehearsals than I do in performances. Yeah, and because of that, and I think that to, and you know, because in the in the LDS faith, we have a completely different musical tradition of of you know old old appalachian folk tune right right harp stuff and it and it does it transports me right to our church history immediately when i hear those old folk tunes yeah uh, there's something so holy sounding too about that well and it's and it's quintessentially american too and so it, so it it tugs at that patriotic nationalistic kind of feeling of being proud of this country and this nation and this history yeah. and of course mormonism is a quintessentially american faith and and um i, I suppose it's all wrapped up in in the package yeah. um i've yeah. never been inside a temple but i i can imagine that they are gr as grand and as multi-sensory as any of the big cathedrals in in other traditions Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I hear chant and I'm instantly transported somewhere else too. And it, it you know, it's just, yeah. And I think to, to pro help provide students with those experiences, you know, we can talk all day about, okay, a lot of my other podcast interviews have been about like choral tone and technique right. and like right. historical facts and relevance. But I think once you build that foundation, we can get to this point of yeah. helping people you know change their lives and i think that that just listening to you talk about it uh, you have this rich vocabulary and this like deep, you feel things deeply uh, it's especially in terms of artistic expression that yeah. is really inspiring to me because i'm much more of a technical like <laughs> your mouth is just not open enough like you 
Yeah. You know, I'm much more of a pragmatic kind of person, but to hear well, you but you have you have different you have whole layers of different complexities that you have to deal with as a director. I mean, I can just wax poetic in the background and and sure. have my big vocabulary. I don't have to worry about getting the right tone. That's your job. Um, although I will say, as as the lyricist, I try not to end a rising line or an obviously rising line with an E vowel. I try to end with an A or an O vowel because I know as a chorister, some there's going to be somebody screeching at the top of that line and it's going to break the, it's going to pop the balloon, right? Yeah. And, and the audience will be transported from a transcendent experience to a concert. Yeah. And, and, and the <laughs> spell is broken. Which is, I think, what sets you apart from so many other poets today. And there's, there's poems that have that yeah. are historical that have been set a trillion times right, right. because they do those things. So, right, I think that's fantastic. Well, again, again, I there's so many other things, and now I'm like I've run out of li I've run out of questions on my list here, uh, <laughs> rambling. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else that that you've thought of as we've been talking that you hmm. think? you'd like to share or... well i mean just the the new thing in my life of course is sacred veil and and it's it's release over the summer and and uh and people are i mean unfortunately people aren't being able to discover it through performance now and rehearsal but which is what we'd hoped but uh um it's it's this is a tough time really to yeah. be a musician and to be a composer and, and it's a scary time yeah. um for all of us from right. from the Eric Whitakers all the way to to choristers and everybody in between, yeah. um, but the sacred veil is is a profound thing and it's and it's an example of it's an example of the power and profundity of authentic raw vulnerability mm. in in art, yeah, um, and so I would encourage folks to to give it a listen. Um, I, it, I, it tells a story, a kind of universal story um, of, of grief and loss and illness and recovery and um, Well, fear. and I love, it, it's, I can list it in the top five, you know, profound musical experiences of my life when I heard it in Salt Lake back in March, uh, when I watched, you know, Eric conduct it. And um, I hesitate bringing it up only because I'm sure you've, again like been bombarded i was <laughs> like oh okay i want to talk about something else besides right. it. but but i since you bring it up i would i would love to hear how how you came to especially the the movement of i'm afraid because that when i first saw the program i just thought to myself how how in the world is this going to work yeah. words are not I don't even understand how this is going to happen. And so how did that, that movement in particular, like I know some yeah. movements were wrong for you and we'll talk about that maybe in just a second, but how did you come to that movement? And how did that come to be? Yeah. You know, Eric and I had talked a lot about the program arc of the piece and, and what beats we needed to hit in order to tell this story in an effective way. And so there had to be a movement when she first finds out that she has cancer and, and we talked, Eric and I talked about that day and anybody that 
I mean, anyone that's been through it or any any kind of weird diagnosis, you're sitting there in the doctor's office and you're already scared as hell. And and then the doctor says, yeah, we found something. And and and, and then then the words start coming at you and and it's clinical. And in a way, maybe the doctors hide behind that because it's sure. got to be emotionally hard for the doctors yeah. to all day, every day, tell people that they've got cancer. You know, I, I just can't understand that. And so maybe there's a, and Eric's position was this, this, that room becomes a, a chapel. It becomes a sacred space. And the thing that's happening is, has become a liturgy. And so how do you get through words like, you know, salpingo ophorectomy and stuff like that well you just chant them and so it becomes a liturgy that elevates it to a sacred nature because it is cancer is sacred and illness and death are are holy yeah and and that's something that i've come to recognize after all this time it's part of why i wrote sacred veil to remind people of the holiness of it um uh, but yeah, digging through her her medical records. I mean, I, I opened up this box of stuff that I hadn't opened since since she passed, sure. and you know, I pulled things from multiple diagnoses and recurrences and stuff. So it's all mixed up in there in that movement from different parts of her journey. Uh, there's bits of, of her death certificate in there, and I mean, so it, it was part of the process for me was purposefully to scratch the scab off yeah. and, and expose the wound again, yeah. almost like cauterizing it, you know? Right. Um, and so it was powerful for me to have to go through and do that. Right. And, and then also try to put it together in a way that, that is singable and, and programmatic yeah. for that particular work. And it absolutely works because everything up until that point, it's, it's jarring. Yeah. It's jarring. And you get to that movement and you, you hear that kind of yeah. written in uh, Accelerando, Ritardando, and then dun, 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 yeah. up in the piano, then all like something is definitely not. Something's right. not right. But you know, Eric's such a genius that that cancer motive, whatever, is all, is present even at the beginning. So it was always there, and it and it bides its time until it's ready to metastasize. Wow. And so, um, it, when people are going to be studying the score of Sacred Veil, I think for a long, long time, Eric was very fastidious and super intentional about everything that he did there. Yeah, and uh, in terms of motives, uh, motives and meaning. Yeah, and, yeah. and word and word painting, deep layers of word painting. Right. What is an example uh, uh, that you can think of, of just like that deep word painting? Well, there's several, and Eric talks pretty freely about it. Um, The middle C is the veil between this world and the next, right? And so uh, the motives jump above and below the veil, right? So so there's this this liminality that dances around the veil all the time. And... um, there's the number three is built within all the, within the structure of that piece. Things are repeated three times. There are intervals of a third, um, minor and then major, or minor and major next to each other. Right, that's part of the cancer thing where something's not fitting quite right. Wow. Um, and the way that all those things subtly fit together 
yeah. um, throughout the context of the whole piece right uh, it is really ingeniously done by him I, you know it's it's my most personal and raw work and i think it's his most sublime writing yeah in I, in his I, whole I, career i i couldn't agree more it i as i sat there i was like this has to be like the pinnacle for both of you <laughs> i know where do we go from and, here yeah like and especially because you've done so many things together yeah uh, so when you talk about vulnerability that for me i mean this we're getting far off the the trail here of of early music but i think it, it doesn't matter it's all relevant because it's like you said before it's all the same but how do you what role do you think vulnerability plays not just maybe in choir because that might sound be kind of obvious to many people but in society mm. and, and what what important is that well that's a really complicated question and we could probably talk for an hour about that the thing that occurs to me right off the bat is that people crave authenticity yes we, we live in such a fake world of pretense and artifice and glamour and illusion and 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 when someone is vulnerable and authentic that can be arresting and and people react differently to that kind of vulnerability some people point and laugh and they become cruel right and then other people are stopped in their tracks and they're profoundly affected by it. And I think there are people throughout history that have had that ability to kind of stop time and make you attend to what they're saying. Yeah. You know, I'd like to think that Jesus is was that was one of those people that just had a kind of uh, the Italians call it a terribilità, right? right? This just sort of this presence that forces you to stop and listen to what he's saying. There's a great scene in Harry Potter. Um, uh, Harry Potter's looking for the lost diadem of of, yeah. of, Ray, of Ravenclaw, whatever, and Luna Lovegood has to just stop and say, Harry Potter, you stop and listen to me, right? right? Yeah. And, and he has to stop. I mean, she's being authentic. She's mad there, right? Yeah. Don't make me use my, my Luna Lovegood voice, right? And and so I I just think you know we're 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 working our thumbs on our phones all day and we're trying to find the pithy little ways uh, how many meanings can the emoji with the winky emoji you know how many things can you communicate with an emoji I think we've kind of lost the ability to be authentic with one another and COVID hasn't helped you know we've all you take us and we all we'll just go into our caves now and and communicate only in this artificial um simulacrum sort of way right right uh, and so i think it's the that vulnerability and authenticity it starts with the creators yeah. of the work of the octavo so yeah. if if the i mean and, and we all know pieces that are pianistic right that have no that, that there's no word painting there it's not it's not choral art the way it's supposed to be i mean it's beautiful but okay yeah. um i don't want to go there but when when the creators are authentic and they create something that that stands the test of time right and then you get it as the director and you go through it you study the score you figure out how to teach it how to what are the keys to unlock the meaning of the text and so on to get the students the singers to buy in 
And then they get it and they begin to study it. They find it. They, they get an authentic experience of that piece. And then in the concert, they, they're going to change somebody's life. Yeah. Right. It's it's when it's when there's a, a chain or a, a train of authenticity that goes from the intention of the creators all the way through to the craft and artistry of the performers. If it's if it's if the concert is programmed right, right, yeah. like a meal, there's there are some hors d'oeuvre, yeah, some chit chat in the cocktail, and then and then the entree is served. And if the person, if the audience's heart has been softened up by the first third of the program, yeah. then you can really, really profoundly affect somebody. And if you're programming Sacred Veil as a second half of a concert, yeah. Be very careful what you program in the first part, right? right? They need to be they need to be set up for the journey that they're about to take. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And and so it's all those levels of intention, and the audience has to bring their own vulnerability too. Right. If they're just going to sit there and like, oh, that was beautiful, thank you so much. What time is it now? You yeah, know, exactly. and they're not they're not open, they're not receptive, they're not being vulnerable to what to what you have to say in the in the concert. Yeah. And I don't care if it's a painting or a quilt or a recipe or a con choral concert. Yeah. Art has the ability to change people's lives. Yeah. Again and again and again. Yeah. And there's pieces of music and pieces of art that you come back to years, decades later yeah. that mean something completely different. Yeah, because you're different. Yeah. The painting just hangs there. It's the same. Absolutely. But you are different. Right. Even pieces of music. I, I look back to pieces like you know, I conducted or studied as an undergrad and I'm like, oh, I would never, okay, no, I'm going to take, take that phrase out and change this because the poem, the music itself speaks so different because of the experiences we have. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we better wrap up. Okay. Just, uh, I could, I would love to maybe have you on again, in, you know, six months or so or a year. My pleasure. I would love to do an entire interview or, or a, part of an interview about Leonardo and, and and some of those particular influences from yeah. Italy and yeah, the, yeah. The time I would love to spend some time dissecting that text how it came about how it matches the music and yeah. um, things like that so um, sure, I'll, it'd be I'll my pleasure in and, and we can get together so Gregorio Allegri, I will be honest, it's confession time to show my imposterness, but I knew literally one piece by Allegri before this podcast. That one piece is most famously known for the vine that was created, and now they would be called TikToks or vi just video of the boys' choir from England somewhere, and the boy goes for that high C, and he has to suck in helium from this yellow balloon. I play this song for my students. They're like, Mr. K, have you seen that video? And I'm like, yes, I have. It is incredible. But also, really? Okay. So, uh, but I've, in research for this episode, I've discovered a lot of really great pieces by Allegri, 
and some cool facts that I didn't know. He's really the first one credited, or he's credited with being the first one to compose a string quartet. His very late Renaissance, really into the Baroque time period. And so he was a chorister in the papal chapel as a boy until his voice broke. And then he held other musical positions and training until later in his life, he was reappointed as a singer in the papal chapel, which, and then he stayed there until his death. So he had like the job, the like number one job. And he has tons of motets that are really short in his concertini, concertini, and he has several books of those. Uh, the second book of concertini has motets written for two, three, four, and five voices, and they're intended to be accompanied by continuo, but these could easily be done a cappella or accompanied by piano. Uh, the entire book is, there's 24 motets, and this entire book of motets would fall in the kind of beginning to intermediate level pieces, even the ones that are for five voices. Um, the polyphony is not super dense and thick. It's not vastly, vastly uh, rhythmically complex. Uh, and it's such great stuff. Oh, I'm so sad. I don't, I didn't know more of these pieces sooner. And I think that he's wildly underperformed. So here's a few, a few of my, my faves, my top jams from Allegri. Uh, this 24, the second book of Concertini, Angelus ad pastores ait, like I, I'll be back, A-I-T, like, you know, anyway, this one's for five voices, S-S-A-T-B, and there's this really cool back and forth between polyphonic and homo homophonic sections with these antiphonal alleluias, it's beautiful. Another one would be Euge serve bone, or uh, uh, sorry, Euge, Euge serve bone, and this is for soprano, soprano, alto, three voice motet, a women's piece. It would work perfect, perfect for like a high school women's chorus. Um, a little bit more advanced towards the intermediate, but there's great polyphony and there's amazing expressiveness. There's a cool mensuration change into kind of what we would now call triple meter. We should do a podcast episode about mensurations. Note to self. Hmm. Uh, there's short singable lines. There's a couple of tricky modes, like switching between modes, but you could kind of incorporate that into like a warm-up. And so once the mode sticks in the ear, it'll stick forever. It's just a little bit counterintuitive sometimes, some of the interval uh, changes and things like that. Uh, another piece that would be good for a beginning-level group is Incipit Lamentation. I mean, again, that's not a Latin pronunciation, but... And this piece is... It's kind of if you take the Miserere opening section where it's kind of homophonic-ish where and it's splitting into polyphony before the cadence and then it cadences together. And 
lots of really beautiful, expressive suspensions. The phrases are simple and even length. So this would be a really great thing to teach independent singing and to kind of be a tiptoe into polyphony because it's not super dense and is really beautiful. For an intermediate piece, um, there's a great mass that he wrote, Misa che fa oggi il mio sole. This is also really, like everything that I found of Allegri has that beautiful counterpoint that's like so expressive, full of dissonances resolving into consonances constantly back and forth, and it's amazing. And so any of these movements could stand alone and would be really good for an intermediate-level group. It is in five parts, soprano, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, so you'd split the sopranos, but the parts are really singable, really expressive, melodic shape. Um, It's really beautiful. So for the advanced piece, I just have to tell the story behind the Miserere. It is so fascinating to me and makes the piece even more mysterious and more uh, kind of wonderful at the same time. So in the Sistine Chapel, the Papal Chapel, they performed their tenebrae responsory services in complete darkness. So the musicians would clearly have to memorize the music um, and use their ears to just stay together. And the tenebrae responsories are evening services to be performed during Holy Week. You know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of Holy Week. And the music was considered so sacred for those services that they weren't allowed to leave the chapel grounds. So musicians weren't allowed to take them home or anything like that. So the only place you could possibly hear these pieces was in the papal chapel. Um, Until this 14-year-old kid came along named Mozart. And uh, he was there and he heard it and he went home and transcribed it, the whole thing. And so there's a long history about, you know, different versions that came about because of Mozart's transcription. A couple generations later, Mendelssohn transcribed it, um, and then it kind of was out in the public, and the the papal chapel kind of stopped that policy of not allowing music to leave. But there's several different versions that have come about, but the... The famous one with the seven high C's um, was performed till until 1870, and then the choir stopped performing tenebrae services there at the papal chapel. So, um, I think that's an amazing story, and that Mozart could just like transcribe it. Mendelssohn too. They're both machines. It's amazing. But anyway, there's just that great back and forth for double choir, right? S-S-A-T-B and then a smaller, you know, half choir or whatever of S-S-A-B or soloists 
typically it's done with soloists. Um, yeah, if you have a really, really killer soprano that can hit those high Cs no problem, then go for it and condense it. It's like 12 minutes long, so, you know, and but it's all just, you know, several verses of the same thing. So just pick two or three verses, make it four minutes, three minutes, and then call it good, and you can totally approach this piece. Um, the chant-like moments, there's some moments where the choir kind of chants together in harmony, and it, it's a really good opportunity to teach them how to like listen together, to kind of just speak together. There's no particular rhythm. It's very chant-like, and it's very cool. It's very cool. So go check out Allegri. The resources and scores and stuff can be found at soundofageschoir.com under the podcast page. And uh, go, go check out Allegri. There's some really great stuff that I've had a lot of fun listening to and researching and playing through, and it's been awesome. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Early Music Monday today. I really appreciate it, and hopefully you were able to learn some things. I loved our discussion with Tony Silvestri, and I learned a lot from that and had some great ideas, and hopefully we can have him back on again in the future. Um, talked a bunch about Allegri and how to create authentic experiences. Um, anyway, if you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a comment in the comments section. Those things help us out a lot. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.